Coming up today, horses versus drones and Berlin versus Elon Musk. You're listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I am your host, James Templeton, and joining me this week are Matt Burgess. Hello. Matt Reynolds. Hello. Natasha Banal. Hello. And Amit Kawala. Hello. This was the week when former US President Donald Trump announced a new social media network called Truth Social. It will allegedly be joined by a roster of other projects being worked on by the Trump Media and Technology Group, including a video streaming service. This was also the week when Facebook confirmed it plans to change its name, which will definitely solve all of its problems. The social media company says it will unveil a new name at an event next week to be more in line with its investment in building the metaverse. And finally, this week it was revealed that a small number of UK schools are using facial recognition technology in lunch queues. The schools are using the tech to allow students to make contactless payments, but the data protection regulator says less intrusive ways should be used. Now, let's put Facebook's dumb idea of renaming itself aside. It does look like it's going to rename itself Meta, and people have even been trawling through some of its trademark filings and have found what appear to be new logos for WhatsApp, Facebook, and Instagram. Now, Meta sounds like quite a bad name to me because everyone will still call it Facebook. Is there anything Facebook could have called itself to help, or is all of this just a massive PR distraction? The Trump Media and Technology Group with, with what I would have gone for, but apparently that's taken. Didn't it have the dog <laughs> True book social. also things? They had dog book, sort of, and cat book, so it could just have just done that, right? Go vintage. And I mean, that would make sense with the timeline that we're currently on. The 2021 mm. joke timeline of Mark Zuckerberg renaming Facebook dog book. Why not? probably more likely to be meta uh we'll uh, no doubt talk about that next week uh, after facebook's glitzy and not at all pointless unveiling all right what did we learn this week amit let's start with you i learned that scientists have pinpointed the exact date europeans first arrived in north america uh, not 1492 as was long thought to be the case but 1021 uh, the way they did this was quite interesting there was a big solar flare in 993 ad which means that all the wood that was cut after that time has a unique uh, carbon isotope makeup distinct from the wood from before that time so by looking at a viking settlement from around a thousand years ago and combining that information with counting the tree rings of the wood that had been used to build the settlement they were able to accurately date it to 1021 exactly and this is a settlement in the like far north of newfoundland in canada right and the, before i think they had like a vague idea that the vikings might have arrived there anytime between i think something like the year 900 and the year 1300 but pinpointing this is really important because to date, this is the only Viking settlement that's been found in North America outside of Greenland. And I think what people would like to understand is how far did Vikings get into North America? Um, and this will help get an idea of maybe what they were able to do at that time, right? Yeah, it's really interesting. The, the other point that some people on Twitter are making, and it's a fair one, is that <laughs> The interest in when the first Europeans arrived in North America is sort of a moot point. There's been a huge lack of research done on the people that actually lived in, in the Americas before 1492. Um, there's a great book called 1491, which dives into some of that, which I'd really recommend reading. 
Very good point. Matt Reynolds, what did you learn this week? I have another North America-themed fact, but this one's from the perspective of a fish. Um, I learned that a fish could theoretically swim all the way through the USA, starting from the Pacific Ocean, going all the way through the USA, every single, not every single state, but never, you know, never leaving the country, and then reach the Atlantic on the other side. And that's because there's a point called the parting of the waters, which is in Wyoming, where a creek divides in two, and one side uh, drains into the Atlantic via Mississippi in the Gulf of Mexico, and the other eventually drains into the Pacific via the Columbia River. So if a fish was very intelligent and determined to do so, it could get all the way from the Pacific to the Atlantic uh, going through America. What, why does it have to be a fish? Could, he, could a human not do this? A human could do it, but typically humans do not swim for thousands of miles in one go. Um, but yes, <laughs> theoretically, they could do it. Also, the creek is very shallow, so the human may find it easier to crawl or walk that portion <laughs> of the trip. But they wouldn't necessarily have to leave the water. They wouldn't, but as I say, there's, there's pictures of the parting of the waters in Wyoming, and it is very shallow, so it might be that a human technically swam most of the way and then walked a little bit and then swam the rest of the way, which frankly is nowhere near as good as swimming all the way. Good point. We'll leave it to the fish. Uh, one thing I learned this week is that Natasha is leaving Wired. We've got two leaving do's in a row. Um, Natasha, you've been with us for just over a year, 90% of the time that we've... No, more than that? Yeah. How long? It was, it's almost my two-year anniversary. It's almost two years. I was just about yeah. to say the majority of that has been spent in lockdown, right? Yeah, it was pretty weird. I managed to get ill four times in our office and then got set home to avoid being struck by coronavirus and came back to the office and now I'm ill again. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a circle of life. It's like history of... Two years. Itself. Has it really been two years? Two years? Yeah, time flies. Yeah, I remember my time first really podcast. It's, it's what, crazy. What, what, what's your fondest memory of the Wired podcast? I think um, Matt Burgess's big ring was quite a good moment um, when he was going on about the Lord of the Rings and you were crying yeah. with laughter for about <laughs> 20 minutes. Um, it was sort of all in silence and you were just weeping um, weeping with laughter uh, that was that was a good moment maybe uh, my first podcast when you guys didn't really tell me what I was doing and you sort of said come into this cupboard with us and we went in to this sort of weird cupboard that was covered in sort of boxes and stuff from glamour and things like that and we were just there um, with our pieces of paper recording the podcast for the first time that was quite nice truly it is a glamorous production process I, mean, we, <laughs> I think back in the back in the old days of the podcast we used to occasionally include bloopers i think the the time when matt burgess brought on a fact about a giant ring uh to the wide podcast and, and, and we all completely lost it that would have been about a good 30 minutes of of yeah as you say me just crying with laughter uh so we've had some good times we've had some bad times but we've got one more podcast to do and we're going to start by talking about horses amit so horse racing as everybody knows is big business. Around £9 billion of wages are made every year, um, which lures both professional gamblers and casual punters to stake small bets 
every week. Now, you've probably heard of bet and play, real-time odds, all the tricks that bookies use to try and get people to spend more money more often. But there's another side to all of this. As we reported this week, there's a quirky clash going on between the racing world and pro gamblers who are going to really quite extraordinary lengths, Amit, to gain an infinitesimally small advantage. Yeah, that's right. So basically, just for people that maybe aren't in the know, in-running or in-play betting means you can bet on an event while it's going on rather than just betting on you know fixed odds before the event actually starts. So in-running or in-play betting can include picking the winner of a horse race after the horses have set off or betting on the next team in a football match who's going to win a corner or a free kick. And the odds dynamically change online. Uh, you can take part by watching TV feeds and betting shops or through bookmakers' websites. But crucially, there can be a lag of between 0.5 and 3 seconds between the things actually happening in real life and the, the images appearing on your screen, whether you're watching on TV or online. That means that people that are betting at home or in shops are acting on slightly outdated information. So anyone who can take advantage of this gap, this 3-second gap, can potentially eke out an advantage. In professional horse racing, it only takes a fraction of a second for a race to change course entirely. So if a better can spot the horse in second place is making a late charge and act on that information before anyone else, they can place on a bet, place a bet on it winning when the odds are more favourable to them. Now, there's obviously a very easy way of doing this, which would be to buy a ticket to the event you want to bet on, stand in the crowd and hopefully get an advantage. But it turns out that the angle that you're viewing the action from the perspective that you've got on it is really, really important. So what pro gamblers have done is go, okay, how can we get the best possible vantage point to take advantage of these tiny differences in real time versus broadcast footage? And this is something that's been going on for years. And with each new technological innovation, it turns out comes a new way of getting ahead. Yeah, the history of this is really, really interesting. Um, so in the latest print issue of Wired, we've got this great piece by Chris Stoker-Walker. He profiled Michael McCall, who's a professional gambler who's been at the forefront of some of these attempts to gain an edge. So he started off with in-running betting. So you'd, you'd, as you say, you'd buy a ticket, you'd open your mobile phone camera and you'd live stream the races so that people could bet on it. And that would have a quicker latency than maybe listening to it on, watching it on TV or you know waiting for the results to come through online. Um, he started in 2006 and within three or four weeks he was doing it full time. By 2011, his enterprise had grown so large that he'd hired someone else to help him. Um, typically, it worked, used to work like this. So they'd get a van, they'd drive it close to a race course and they'd essentially just stand there by the side of the race course but outside the grounds with a camera uh, filming um, and relaying the footage while um, one of them would then place bets that took advantage of the fact that they were able to find things out before other people like watching on TV. Um, it escalated so they were using cherry pickers to get a better vantage point at the track. Um, soon they quit their job and they started doing things like climbing up trees or wading through rivers or you know hiding in bushes to get a good vantage point on these different races. All of that kind of sounds a little bit um, slapstick, I guess, in a way. Like th- This doesn't sound like a professional operation if you're hiding in a bush or um, climbing up a tree, but they're not doing any of that anymore because a piece of technology came along that meant that they didn't have to do that and we're talking about drones so this is something that's made bookies and racecourse managers really really unhappy because finally pro gamblers can use technology to get not just ahead in terms of timing but also to get the best possible vantage point to take advantage of that advantage 
Yeah, exactly. So they've started using drones, which obviously have they're cheaper than ever they're easier to use than ever they're equipped with better cameras than ever and the ability to live stream footage straight to the internet or to your phone or whatever you would like to do so typical a typical example of this comes from 2019 this is one of the ones we talk about in the feature at Chelmsford. so um they launched the drone into the air for a test flight then when the race starts they they fly it above the horses essentially as they're running along and meanwhile in the van mccall is watching a tv monitor that's beaming live pictures back from the drone's onboard camera um, while they're watching, they place bets online using the information that they're getting from the drone to give them an advantage. They use a program called Betfair Betting Assistance to split their attention between the drone stream and, and the, the bets that they're placing. Um, but they weren't the only ones kind of watching, right? So while they were doing this, the staff at the race course were also trying to catch them. Essentially, the race course facilities manager had been alerted that something strange was happening. Someone who was at the race course gambling had been had noticed that the odds kept changing in the middle of the race which suggested that the market was changing before events kind of unfolded which meant that someone somewhere had an edge um so the race course has sent some people out to drive around the outside of the track until they found the white van they confronted the drone operatives the police were called um the there was a kind of big dispute but and the, the drone ended up being confiscated and McCall and his colleague Peters were charged for flying it over a congested area. But then in March 2020, the charges were dropped. Okay, so this is sounding like more of a professional operation. Obviously, there are quite high stakes here. If the police are being called and lawsuits are being launched and charges eventually being dropped, there's a bit of drama, right? So you'd imagine there are quite big returns here right the concerns raised by bookies and race courses is that this is professionalizing and scaling up what's been happening for years with people either coming along and standing in the crowd and live streaming or hiding in a bush um so all of that was a bit slapdash but this is really professionalized it's a whole other ball game if you like or a whole other horse game yeah yeah it has grown a lot so he ties people to get drone coverage at dozens of sporting events a week um they, the drone cameras have less than half a second of latency compared to up to three seconds, which gives them that split second advantage. Um, the way it works is that McCall's and his associates get a share of 50% of the winnings from every week. 30% goes to him and business partners. He says he invests about £30,000 a week. But actually, funnily enough, although it does seem like a big business, he only makes around £200 a day. He says it pays the bills and he gets to pick his own hours, but it's not a massively lucrative uh, business, especially when you consider the amount of time and effort and investment he's putting into it. Um, it has been flown at you know dozens of race courses across the UK. Um, on the day when Chris spoke to McCauley, had drones going at four race courses, getting footage of twenty-five different races. But we're still just talking about two hundred pounds a day. I mean, when you talk about the scale of the operation and the technology that they're using, and that he's betting thirty thousand pounds a week on various different races, you'd think that he'd be making more than two hundred pounds a day. So, what, why are the sums of cash so small? Well, partly because the the betting markets that they're operating in are quite small. Like, how much cash is really getting wagered on like a random race that say you know weatherby on like a tuesday afternoon or whatever like there's there's, li- there's very little money flowing around these markets which means that if you suddenly were to start placing ten thousand twenty thousand thirty thousand pounds bets you'd, you'd move the market and and it would be immediately obvious that something wasn't right and that would hamper your ability to to win um the second thing is that in horse racing split second advantages don't count for as much as they maybe do in other sports right there's very few scenarios where a horse can go from being completely out of the running to suddenly being about to win unless 
several horses fall or something like that right it kind of turns to be like incremental things so you might know that you might get ahead of your competitors and and be the first to know that the horse in third is making a charge for first but actually trying to monetize that is quite difficult the other factor to consider is that you're not you know if you're if you're betting on a traditional betting site the the bookies have got people at the venues as well and those are the people you're competing against on traditional betting so you know you you don't have an advantage over the house as it were the people you're trying to get an advantage against are the people that are betting on betting exchanges who so other gamblers that are watching on TV using an, a site like Betfair, which allows you to essentially bet against other bettors rather than betting against the bookmaking companies themselves, which would have the same advantages that you've had to use a drone to get. And as you pointed out earlier, one of the reasons that they were caught is because another punter noticed that the odds didn't add up. So that's the other problem, right? So the house kind of always wins, but they're making a mess of the odds for everybody else. And that means that the horse rating industry and the bookies are not happy. So betting in the UK alone is a £34.4 billion industry, around three in every four pounds that's wagered is wagered online. Football is obviously by far the biggest it's 38 percent of that turnover but horse racing comes a pretty close second and accounts for a third of all gambling revenue in the uk and non-remote or offline betting is just an eight billion pound industry and 96 percent of the bets there are laid off course which means at high street counters and in bookmakers shops so it's not just bookmakers that profit from every bet laid the house which almost always wins, includes racecourse owners. And that's where things start to get quite tense. Drones buzzing around the outside of racecourses up and down the UK and racecourses who are really keen to protect, I guess, their intellectual property in a way. Yeah, exactly. It's um, But it's kind of a bit of a legal grey area. So that the incident in Chelmsford where the drones got confiscated and then returned and the charges were dropped shows that there aren't really rules around this apart from the rules around, you know, drone safety and things like that, which they've been trying to use to stop this from happening. Um, race courses are still trying to prevent trainer push from flying near their events in February 2021. The Arena Racing Group, which is a kind of the country's biggest racing race course owners, served a warning prior to legal action, um, a threat to take someone to court for flying drones. Um, and they're, they're really trying to use every mechanism of the law they have available to stop this from happening, but it's unclear whether they'll be able to. Um, things have particularly changed since the pandemic because obviously, as you mentioned right at the top, James, in the past, you could get this advantage by buying a ticket and going to the race yourself and then you'd have that instant information. But when the pandemic shut audiences and people couldn't go, um, drone use found a particular niche. Um, people would used to buy tickets to the races because they want, wanted to get that second advantage. Um, then they started turning to drones. Um, so safety has been... One of the issues for this, regulations stop people from flying a drone over a crowded place. Um, that kind of went away, that problem kind of went away and the rationale for stopping the drones became a little bit harder for the racecourses to enforce during the pandemic. But the Arena Racing Company, which runs 16 horse racing courses, says it's seen a significant growth in the number of drones being flown at race meetings, partly due to advances in drone technology, partly down to practicalities. But there are a number of problems for most of the safety of the participants, they say. Um those in industry obviously have a vested interest, as you mentioned at the top, but they tend to agree that drone-based betting is a bad thing. The other problem is that it infringes on their broadcast rights. So not only is there the safety aspect of this from drones flying over crowds or flying over horses, there's also the the rights to the races themselves are valuable. Video, video feeds of races happening, of sporting events happening, are valuable to the people that are putting those on. You know, it could be 
100 million pounds a year of revenue from tv rights that the racecourses are getting and having a drone illicitly filming them uh, and selling that footage to other people infringes on those rights too yeah and i think in the early days of some of these experiments with flying drones on or near race courses, there was a live streaming element to it, which looks like it's gone away because there you really, that is an illegal gray area. That's a breach of copyright. Um, and you'll end up, uh, you'll end up in court for doing that. So this is really about giving people the information they need to get that split second advantage. But even so it kind of gives uh, race course owners and the betting industry an argument to make, right? Footage is being captured of their races and that could potentially be broadcast and shared quite widely. So now we've got this battle, right, going on between drone pilots and the horse racing establishment. And McCall, the guy at the centre of this story, fully intends to keep on setting up drones near horse races. So race organisers are going to keep trying to stop him. So who wins? Yeah, it's interesting. There's developments on both sides. From the the race organisers, they've got the the law on their side to a certain extent, even if it's not entirely sure whether what McCall is doing is a crime. But there was a no-flying designation put in place at the Grand National. Um, McCall says he and his men have been repeatedly stopped by the police while flying, but never been charged. He says he's working with new technologies which will help capture better images in poor weathers and and is uh, trialling a horse-tracking camera that would help monitor races more easily. I would take that with a little bit of a pinch of salt, considering that, you know, a few years ago he was hiding in a bush <laughs> in camouflage gear. I don't know if the AI horse tracking camera is, is going to become a reality anytime soon. Um, one weapon that the racecourses have up their sleeve, though, is the ability to fight fire with fire, right? They've tried to stop people at tracks from getting a time advantage, from slowing down the on-course footage beam to giant screens or stopping attendees from pointing their phone at the screens to and live streaming it to others and, and using legal action. But what they haven't yet tried is actually speeding up the pictures. So reducing that latency to just demolish the advantage that you'd get from flying a drone over the course. Um, Racecourse Media Group, which manages the broadcast rights to 34 British racecourses, says it's been working on the low latency stream and it's managed to bring down the latency of its live streams to just under a second behind real-time events. They're aiming to get that down to 0.6 seconds in the very near future, which will basically negate the advantages that you might get from from flying a drone over the race course. Um, and that would be something that would be good for your average gambler on the high street, bad for people like McCall. Um, and probably actually on balance, bad for betting companies who have relied on this advantage that they get from having people at every single race course to, to change the odds in advantage. So it might actually end up being worse for the, the bookies themselves, even if it makes things fairer for everyone else. Um, it's a, there's an interesting it's a quote fascinating though, like, sorry go on I was just going to say yeah, the, the only way you're going to stop the drones is what one person said is by creating your own drones which everyone can pay for is essentially the, the plan yeah and then within that reducing the latency on the stream so this is a problem that's being created by technology and easy access to it for people like well a problem if you see it as one for people like McCall who are trying to get one step ahead of race courses and, and bookmakers well Turns out that the race course owners and bookmakers can kind of use that same technology and go even further because they've got far deeper pockets to outgun the people who are trying to outgun them. Ultimately, it looks like it's going to come down to technology winning out in the end, depending on whose side you're on. Um, and maybe McCall will lose that advantage. It's a really fascinating story. It's in the latest issue of Wire Magazine. If you've got a print copy, um, head towards the back and you'll find it there. If not, we'll include a link to it in the show notes. It's also on wired.co.uk. If you want to get in touch with the show, it's podcast at wired.co.uk.
For our second story this week, Natasha and I are going to Berlin. Across Europe, the race is on to increase the production of electric vehicles. Uh, Hybrid and fully electric cars have been surging in popularity in recent years, with countries implementing climate targets to phase out combustion engine vehicles by 2030. Um, And in this space, Europe wants to compete with China, the US and elsewhere in the production and manufacturing of EV and batteries. Um, So... Germany has historically been one of the world's biggest vehicle manufacturing powerhouses and its reason uh, and the reason behind this is why uh, Elon Musk has parked his own factory on the country's lawn. Musk picked Germany recently to build a new gigafactory for the production of Tesla vehicles, but since he did, he's run into a bunch of problems in the nation. So, Natasha, is the factory up, open and running yet? No. So I actually remember exactly when Elon Musk announced that he was going to put his factory in Berlin because that was my first podcast two years ago. So November 2019, Elon Musk was like, suck it, car makers. I'm going to come to your house, build the biggest um, battery gigafactory in Europe. And I'm going to create millions of new Tesla electric vehicles there. And I'm going to, you know, do it on, on basically in your house. Right. I'm going to do that right under your noses so the UK at the time was a potential contender for the location we were absolutely gutted that the UK was not chosen for that so he goes and starts setting up in Berlin since then uh, there's been massive amounts of delay so the gigafactory is actually built it is there but it isn't open and the reason for that is a myriad of things have been sort of um, roadblocks for for Tesla Um, most of them were sort of from mother nature herself i suppose you could you could say uh, first of all the the gigafactory is going to be built in an area that was a sort of natural nature reserve uh, with uh, sort of millions of trees that had to be cut down um so they came up against environmentalists who were going you know it's not fair for you to cut down all these trees what do the trees do to you etc cetera, etc cetera. so there was a lot of um protests and delays thanks to that um elon musk has said those trees were actually not there because they were pretty or helping the environment. They were there for sort of pulping for wood. So it doesn't mean that we can't cut them down. But then the environmentalists were like, aha, but there are loads of things living in the trees, such as lizards and snakes that were hibernating. So that also stopped the factory from being built uh, because they had to wait until the snakes woke up. Um, then they said, you know, you're using too much water, Elon Musk, because uh, you're going to decimate the water reservoirs in the area. So he fell foul of um, the water authority there as well so you've got a lot of kind of delays a lot of them are kind of they seem almost absurd but it's meant that the planned opening in July 2021 never happened um, and it's expected to be at some point next year um, so so you've got huge amounts of delays the factory is there um, there's also bureaucracy so they've actually built this factory without a permit which is something that you can do under German law if uh, you are expected to definitely get a permit in the end and also if you are prepared to restore uh, the actual natural landscape to what it was if you don't get the permit. So uh, there's, there's a lot going on there that doesn't make a lot of sense in terms of timeline. I know that Elon Musk isn't very happy about that. He went from being, you know, Berlin rocks, this is amazing, to, well, we'll open it if we can and do cars there if we are able to so the answer the short answer is no matt it's not open it is is there but it's not open 
So we've got this factory that is in place and in many ways is probably ready to start production and working to build vehicles and everything like that. And the reason why we're talking about it a bit at the moment, uh, aside from all the sort of like the political and uh, drama around the, the creation of the factory itself, is that recently Tesla held a Gigafest there, which was a pretty much an event just designed to sort of promote the factory itself and uh, show local people the area. Um, we sent a reporter along to the Gigafest day. So what was what was happening then? Yeah, so um, you're right. It was sort of an open open doors day uh, that was held in uh, the Berlin Gigafactory in early October, and it it was intended to be something that would sort of woo the locals and you know explain to them how the factory would work and what it would look like and show them that it's not you know something that they should necessarily be protesting against. Um, but in fact, it, it attracted a lot of people from around the world. So our reporter, Jessica Bateman, was outside the event. They actually barred journalists from attending. So she was there with a few super fans, some of which had dressed up as um, sort of characters uh, from from shows and stuff to try to, you know, um, somehow edge their way in. Uh, I don't really know how that sort of would help necessarily but anyway they um they were sort of there trying to get into to basically attend this this big event um they had set up a sort of ferris wheel they'd set up sort of uh festival stalls uh with food and elon musk had been flown in uh from the us uh to attend the event and give a speech and if you were lucky enough to be one of the few thousand people that were allowed in you would have seen um him sort of give this speech um i don't know if you've ever seen uh, Elon Musk actually gave a speech before Matt, but he's very awkward. He relies on sort of scripts and doesn't really know how to deviate from that. Um, and his script wouldn't load in English. So he was left with a sort of German script and didn't really know what to do for a little bit. And everyone was like, oh, just, you know, just wing it. And he so he started speaking in, in, ger- in broken German for about five minutes until someone in the crowd awkwardly screamed, like, we understand English, you know. And he was like, oh, OK. But obviously he lost his script so he didn't really know what to say in English anyway so it was all a bit of a bit of a muddle but he got there in the end um but yes it was it was strange because a lot of local people weren't necessarily allowed in so they did it as a ticketed event and it wasn't until a couple of days before the event that people knew if they were going to get a ticket or not so a lot of people that wouldn't have necessarily been from the local area would be the ones in attendance who are obviously massive super fans of Elon Musk and would have traveled a long way to get there so you win some you lose some I guess Logistics points aside, um, what do we make of the overall effort from this? Because obviously the the event and setting up this big um, day where lots of people come, look at the factory, see Elon Musk in person, uh, even if he's speaking in broken German at the time, um, is obviously meant to sort of woo the local community, make them sort of like uh, support the factory and what Tesla's trying to do in the area and, and bringing in new jobs and all of these types of things that comes with a development like this. Um, do we know, like, how 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 was it? How did it go down? Oh, so it's, the people are really divided about both Elon Musk and the Gigafactory itself. So Tesla's promised around 12,000 local jobs and has said it will produce uh, 500,000 uh, Model Ys a year. Um, so, so that's a lot of potential you know, investment in, in the local area. You've got to remember, I'm going to butcher this name, but Grunheide, is that, is that how you say it? I, I want to. I'm going to say yes. It's it's basically um, you know a few a few miles outside of Berlin. It's in, in East Germany. It was it's an area that's been quite deprived. Um, they they welcome the local investment, but a lot of people are very skeptical about 
how that will actually pan out. The construction of um, the Tesla Gigafactory itself came under criticism because um, rather than using local people, allegedly the company used um, Polish workers to build it. You know, that Elon Musk himself on stage was saying, we're going to need people from all over Germany and all over Europe and the world to fill these vacancies because we need people as soon as possible. So uh, local people are very sceptical about what this means for them. They think there's going to be a lot of people coming in from the outside that are going to get the jobs, uh, that are going to, you know, rocket up the local uh, price of, of, you know, things like, you know, homes um, and transport, and they think that it's going to end up being a bad thing for them overall. There are people, however, that think, you know, this is really great because there's been a lot of... Um, a lot of brain drain in that area. A lot of people have found that when they graduate, they don't have, you know, opportunities for jobs and things like that. So they've been going elsewhere. So they're hoping that Tesla might create a more burgeoning atmosphere and, and a better environment for younger people to want to stay. So you've got very divided, very opposed views. A lot of people are very sceptical. And this this event was very much made for for people to you know, come and see the factory, come and test out the Teslas, you know, come and meet us um, and, and hopefully convince them that that the Gigafactory is, is a good idea and maybe a place that they might want to work. And it just doesn't appear that that has been the case, unfortunately. It doesn't seem to have convinced anyone except for the people who are already convinced, uh, which are the, the Tesla superfans. Yeah, and that's probably one of the, the key points here with this type of event and the, this type of uh, movement or development from a company if you are on board with it and if you support it already um you're probably not going to have your mind convinced the other way and if you're opposed to it um equally you're probably still going to keep holding those views unless something significant changes um and as we've talked about a little bit already um some of the opposition around this isn't just around um sort of the uh, economical impact of the um of the factory on the on the on, on the local community but it's also about the um the environment as well and some of these environmental concerns are they are they still outstanding as well yeah so they haven't given up none of these uh, there's like lots of local activists that haven't given up at all and are saying you know this is still a huge danger for the environment there's a campaign group called citizens initiative grunheider who parked a caravan and tied up this huge sort of banner saying you know stop tesla outside of the event they were very incensed and you know a lot of the, the tesla fans were apparently you know screaming at them they were screaming at the tesla fans it's a bit of conflict going on there but they're, they're saying basically that they've got experience because this is a nation of car makers they've got experience of the environmental impact that making cars can have on the local environment and they're saying you know we, we've seen what they've done tesla hasn't proven that it's going to be that different for us um this this isn't what we want so just go somewhere else, basically, <laughs> which is a bit, it's a bit of a tricky thing to say to a company that's already built a massive factory. But um, but yeah, they're, they're not going to give up. They're going to take Tesla to court over their environmental concerns. Um, they, they think that this isn't over, uh, basically. And they, they could throw a spanner in the works, really, if they're, if they're able to delay the opening of the factory. I mean, you've got to remember that German bureaucracy is, is famous for being very thorough and for delaying projects. There was an airport that was built, I think, I think, was it Berlin Airport? I can't remember, but it was delayed for about a decade over paperwork. So this could really be damaging for Tesla if, if they're not able to, you know, get this off the ground in the timeline that they need. I mean, you've got, it is, you know, the most profitable car company in the world now, but it doesn't produce nearly as many cars as its competitors. You know, you've got Volkswagen, BMW, etc. They all, they all produce a lot more than Tesla's. And this, the idea of, of creating this gigafactory in the first place was to ramp up production. So if it's not able to do that in the timescale that it needs, and it clearly hasn't, but, you know, even in a reasonable timescale, that's going to be a big problem. 
You mentioned airports there as well. And if you go and Google the, the Tesla Berlin uh, Gigafactory, looking at the size of it, it is comparable to something that is the size of an airport. It's absolutely yeah. huge, sort of multiple floors in different places, covering sort of acres of ground as well. And it's and it's already there, which is, I guess, one of the big points around this. It's built, it's constructed to whatever degree it is finished inside and things like that. And um, the company is obviously keen to start producing and has said at times that it hopes to be producing by the end of this year, but has these legal challenges and everything else going on as well and aside i guess from those of uh, bureaucracy points what happens next year what what do we expect from uh this big development and what and what really as well happens if uh the permits don't come through yeah so obviously musk had initially said july 2021 and now he said the first quarter of 2022 so he's making big promises See, there there are other, you know, Tesla gigafactories. The one in Texas is going very well, apparently. Um, so so they could pick up the slack. I think that the difficulty here is is knowing whether he can meet the deadlines or not. And and I think a lot of the a lot of the problems here is lack of communication. So a lot of the people that were talking to Jessica on the ground were very much saying, you know, it, no one's been talking to us. They've just been doing whatever they want. They don't have permits. They're sort of, you know, elbowing their way into the space. Um, Elon Musk is the only one who's actually a spokesperson for the company now. They don't have anyone on the ground. Um, we know that as journalists as well. They, they got rid of their entire communications team. So it, it's very difficult to know what, what's going on and, and who's managing this. So I, I think there's, there's a lot of uh, ground to be won on that front, just him engaging a bit more with the local community. Um, but yeah, the, the deadline is, is very much the thing that could, that could hamper um the situation here because it it would be very easy for tesla to say okay uh we're gonna hedge our bets and maybe berlin won't be the gigafactory for europe for tesla maybe we're gonna situate it in a place that doesn't have so many problematic bureaucratic um methods let's maybe go to poland or somewhere else instead i mean who knows but but it was it was a bold move to say to you know traditional car manufacturers we're gonna come and get you um, problem is he's, he's not there yet so lots of bark no bite but almost bite right so <laughs> it's very it's very unlikely that this factory isn't going to be up and running in in the near future it's kind of quite typical of elon musk to set wildly ambitious deadlines to then miss them nobody seemingly judges him or his companies for it and he keeps doing it um i guess better to promise the world and then eventually deliver it right um so it'll be interesting to see what this does do as you said this is building the biggest battery production facility in europe right in the backyard of some of the world's biggest automakers it's it's a bold move eventually you'd imagine it will pay off and now i, I suppose it's up to the european automakers to come up with their own plan and deliver on a scale that tesla's delivering on so that they can compete yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it, you're right. You know, no one's no one's really um, expecting it to be an easy process. Right. I think that the tricky bit will be to find those 12,000 or so people that they need to relocate and, and actually make this this factory function. That that would be probably the, the most difficult thing to, to move forward. But yeah, I mean, you'd think that by now traditional car manufacturers would have sort of stepped up and tried to you know, do a counter move against Musk. But so far, they just seem happy to not do anything at all. I, I think it's, it's you know, it's, it's good that there are going to be some 
um, efforts to meet some of the targets that the European Union have put forward for electric vehicles, that there is someone out there trying to make electric vehicles um, at all, because, you know, the, the situation at the moment, especially with the shortages of, you know, chip shortages, and Tesla's proven that it's the only car manufacturer who hasn't, who has been able to, you know, make a profit, despite that, who has sort of a strong pipeline. So you'd think, if this does go ahead, and it goes ahead quickly, it's going to be a great coup for, for Tesla, regardless of whether local people like it or not. Um, but the question is, will they stand in the way of this? And I don't know the answer yet to that. Yeah, you, meant, you mentioned it there. And I think for out the vibe was they're not necessarily making any friends. And you really no. need to make friends if you're intending to build this huge facility and then you need 12,000 people to work in it. So the idea is good, but the, the comm strategy um, and the PR strategy around it is probably not what it should be. We've got a pretty international listenership on the podcast, podcast at wired.co.uk. If you're in Germany, if you're in Berlin, this is probably a, a much bigger issue for, for you. It's happening right in your backyard. And more broadly, uh, people are kind of a, a, a bit loving or hate him on Elon Musk. Um, does he need to kind of tone down the rhetoric a little bit and don't do the move fast and break things approach anymore? It's a it's a good project. It's probably not being carried out in the right way. What's your view? Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that or anything else that we've talked about on the podcast this week. Matt Reynolds, you have been sitting in silence for too long. Your time has come to delve into the podcast inbox. Yeah, I've been sitting quietly like a well-behaved child that, that I am. Uh, so Andy wrote in about our story about the trade-off between animal ethics, animal welfare and climate change. And he said, I really enjoyed the feature this week or last week on how to reduce our carbon footprint by eating less meat. Andy personally went pescatarian for a year, a few years back. But then rather embarrassingly, he says, when we got to Christmas, caved in at the thought of a nut roast. Andy, I can share with you some good recipes. I don't think it needs to be a sacrifice to go for a nut roast. Lots of good ones out there. So Andy had a couple of questions, said, did your research cover how many people are vegan or vegetarian compared now compared to five years ago? And this is actually a really difficult question to answer because there aren't very reliable statistics on veganism and vegetarianism in the UK or, or, or places like the US either. So there's an interesting article from the fact-checking organisation Full Fact, which basically tried to find out, well, how many vegetarians are there in the UK and how does that, that compare? And they pointed out that it's, there's not very much good data around this because people have different definitions of these terms. People, people's diets change. So a lot of polling is done around Veganuary, but obviously that produces kind of artificially inflated figures. And a lot of the polling is done by vegan organisations, which, depending on what they're promoting at the time, may underplay or overplay the actual uh, definition. So kind of interestingly, there's not very good figures. You think it's kind of three or 5%, something like that. Maybe, Andy, you want to collect some data over time. I think someone should be finding that data because it's, pretty, it's a pretty basic question that we don't have a great idea about. And the other question Andy asked was, uh, what is the government doing to push people away from meat and contribute to you know, the, the, the drive to kind of reduce emissions from food? Uh, really, the answer there is not so much at the moment. So this is something that's come up. The Climate Change Committee, which is the kind of uh, you know, non-governmental body that, that advises about climate change in the UK, has asked the government multiple times, actually, to put out official advice about reducing meat consumption. But the government has not ever said this as a kind of um, actual stance. It'll be interesting since the government has just released its um, Race to Net Zero report. I've not gone through that in detail yet, if that mentions food or not. James has his hand up, so maybe he has read it and does know the answer. 
I don't know the answer, but I was going to say it's not entirely unlike this government not to sort of come out with a, a hard rule on something, right? So one would imagine what the headlines in some publications might be if the government were to come out with like recommendations on, on meat consumption. So you can kind of see the logic behind it not saying anything, but really it should be saying something by now, right? Yeah, exactly. When I got Andy's question, I looked into this a little bit and there are, you see articles in newspapers that, that are like, this lawyer says we should outlaw meat by 2025. And you, exactly, you see, you'd probably see the same response in some areas of the, of the press. If the government said, yeah, maybe we should reduce meat, it would be the government's going to outlaw meat by this, this year or the government wants to take away your, your stakes. So... Yeah, I, I think it's it's a really interesting question. The government has not made a lot of definitive statements about this. I guess there are other levers they can push in terms of incentivising research into plant-based alternatives and all that stuff. Um, watch this space, really, because I think that there's only so long you can get away with not mentioning it. Maybe it won't be, you know, don't eat meat, but it might be other kinds of nudges they might try. Amit, from beef to squid, you got an email <laughs> about squid games this week. Yeah, that's right. Yanis wrote in about the Netflix show, which we talked about on the podcast last week. Um, we talked about the business and tech related things that have contributed to its popularity. But Yanis thinks that we missed something. He says that the show speaks to feelings of desperation, disillusionment, disenfranchisement and any other D word that you can think of that dominates today's <laughs> culture in the aftermath of the pandemic and financial disorder. It's no surprise, he says, that a show that taps into these feelings is so successful. Cheery. Very cheery. <laughs> I guess a fair point. Uh, on on the general doom, despair uh, mood. One final email this week, the subject line for which was no... <laughs> I think I've captured the, the, the number of O's uh, that was where... Weirdly, Zoom has just flashed up a thing asking me if I'm playing music. So it clearly thought that me saying no for a really long time was a song. <laughs> Uh, it wasn't Zoom, but thank you for thinking that I can actually sing. Uh, the, uh, the body of the email was, Vicky, you will be missed. Well, if you're sad that Vicky's leaving, um, that, that email was from Victoria, who probably isn't Vicky, but might be. Um, if you're sad that Vicky has left Wired, then the news of Natasha passing will maybe bring you some comfort or send you into an even deeper spiral of sadness. Natasha, it's your final Wired podcast. It's your penultimate day at Wired it's up to you to close out the show okay first of all I, I'm convinced that was Vicky because <laughs> it's something that that is iconic and I think you'll get an email from Natasha next week um, and that'll be that'll be me saying no Natasha you'll be missed I've, I've loved working on the podcast um, I was uh, asked out twice by our listeners Two different ones, uh, not the same one, no stalkers. Um, I've been asked, you know, what is Matt Reynolds really like? Um, yeah, is he cool? <laughs> At parties, uh, several times, always Matt Reynolds, never any of the rest of you. It's It's been peculiar. Um, I've been told that I'm stupid, um, mostly by people on the podcast, but by some listeners too. So I feel like for some people it will come as a welcome relief to not have me in your ear every week. Uh, but I'll certainly miss it. And I've really enjoyed doing the podcast. And I feel a bit emotional, which is sad. So, um, yeah, if you've liked any of the noises I've made over the last two years, inadvertent or on purpose, do email us, podcast at wired.co.uk. <laughs> there we go. Uh, all that's left for us to say is, Natasha, it's been an absolute pleasure working with you over these past oh. two years. 
not one year turns out it's been two you will genuinely be sorely missed both on the podcast and at wired by all of us so thanks very much for everything and we will see you again never and we'll see everybody else again (laughs) we'll see everybody else again next week thanks so much for listening and thanks to natasha Bye -bye. bye 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 bye